Amen. And a big congratulations to our brother Seth Rice on getting engaged uh, a week ago. <clears throat> to Miss to Lauren Graves. Lauren has played uh, the violin for us up here at nine o'clock a couple of times. So, congratulations. Good on you, brother. Um, we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel. And I'm going to read to us, as we've moved past chapter 15, which I thought you probably thought we'd never leave, um, but how wonderful it was, and now we move into chapter 16, and so we'll be reading Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, that's uh, page 1040 if you have an ESV Pew Bible with you. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill. And sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we've read from... Psalm 34, in recognizing that it requires humility to see you magnified. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us humble hearts, that, Lord, we would see you for who you are, and that, as Seth has shared, that that perspective would move us and change us. Father, give us eyes to see as we turn to this, your word, for we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, of all the 
subject matters that Jesus talked about the most, the first being the kingdom of God, the second is probably money. Of 38 parables, about 16 of them involve money. He gives it so much attention. It it matters to who we are, how we live. It is a good gift full of potential for blessing, but it is also dangerous. It's like handling a a live wire. It, It can electrocute you. It can derail your life. And both strands are there, light and darkness. The light side, it it is a blessing from God. Money meets needs. It makes things happen. It enriches life. It is part of God's good and generous provision. And the Bible is full of rich people of faith. Men and women. People who supported Jesus financially in his ministry. He socialized with them. The early church had resources poured into their coffers from those with money. Reckless generosity is a spiritual gift. It it is an aspect of love itself. But money is also dangerous. Love of money, 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 reminds us, is a root of all kinds of evil. If you have it and depend on it, that is dangerous. If you don't have it and you crave it, that too is dangerous. It can control your life, it can steal your joy, and it can wreck your marriage. And when our hopes and when our securities and our convictions for what makes for a good life are wrapped up in it, it becomes an idol. Competing with the true God for our worship. Love of money is not an isolated flaw. It is sometimes, as one writer puts it, a penetrating peek into the recesses of our soul's rebellion against God himself. Now, who of us have not fantasized about making money, dreamed of having it in abundance, winning it, uh, earning more of it, planned on what we would spend it on, seen it as our way forward for our children, for our security, for our social acceptance, for our retirement? Who has not voted in an election because we were anxious to protect something or to gain something in this area of money? And when Mammon whispers in our ear, you need me in your life, you need me for a good life, and we guiltily respond, I know, I know, then in New Testament terms, we are already candidates for Idolaters Anonymous. Well, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable that has absolutely tied commentators into knots and confused the rest of us for centuries. As one person put it, more scholarly ink has probably been spilled over this one parable than any other. 
For a start, how do you reconcile that familiar gospel line that we know so well at the end of verse 13? You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon. And reconcile that with the end of verse 9 where Jesus tells us to use worldly wealth or unrighteous mammon to gain friends. How does that work? And in verse 8, can it be right that Jesus is really endorsing a commendation of outright dishonesty? Congratulating a con man. Jesus, as we have said for several weeks now, is is a master storyteller. Just the depth of everything that that he conveys in these short little parables. And these parables have a sting in the tail. They are meant to unsettle us. And this isn't the first or the last time that Jesus took a crooked man to teach a straight lesson. In Luke chapter 18, which we may or may not get to uh, through the summer months, the unjust judge used as an analogy for God himself. It's, it's a rabbinical style of argument, uh, lesser to the greater. How much more? If an unjust judge will do this, what will a God who is just do? And here, if a bent, dishonest manager is this shrewd in the use of his money that he has access to, what will you do with what you have? Well, the story in verse 1 is told, as we are told, is told to the disciples. And so as it is a parable that is specifically to the disciples, we have to understand that this is also very much specifically towards us, for those of us who are believers, for those of us who consider ourselves disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, yes, in verse 14, as we'll look at next week, the Pharisees who loved money and thought they knew a thing or two about these issues are also listening, for they ridiculed him after hearing the story. But they were not the primary audience. It's the disciples that are the primary audience, and, and, in, and in turn, so are we. Now, you may be asking why he shifts from the prodigal son to money. Is this just sort of a hard-line break, and he's sort of changing the subject? Well, I think there's a connection here. I think it's subtly in verse 31 of chapter 15, when the father tells the older brother, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You see, because the older brother and the prodigal wanted the same thing, just in a different way. The prodigal wanted the father's things and not the father. And the older brother, in a, in a different way, wanted the father's things but not the father. And so it is interesting that he then that Jesus then discusses how to handle the things of the father. How to be a steward of the gifts that the father has given. Because the two sons were terrible stewards. And in this story there's a wealthy man who finds out that his manager has mishandled his possessions. And so he calls him in, and he calls him in uh, to bring his books of accounts. Uh, 
Uh, And because he did not fire the man immediately on the spot, there was time for the manager to self-preserve. There was time for him to come up with an audacious plan, a a self-protecting plan. And so we overhear this conversation that's taking place in his head. Now, he is in a a terribly precarious position. You know, this man does not have the benefit of, of, of welfare or unemployment. There's no safety net for him. It will either be sink or swim, and he's about to swim his arms off. He's not in a position to work a manual labor job, and he is too ashamed to beg. And so he needs a plan. So in verse 4, to ensure his future, where he now needs to focus all of his energy, he calls in his employer's creditors. And one by one, he writes off 20 to 50% of their debts. And these are not just minor things. This is massive. And anyone who would have been listening to this story would have known that these were huge debts. This way, those debtors really owe this manager when it matters. And when he is in a time of need, they will receive him into their houses because they will remember this massive debt that was forgiven on his part. Now, commentators wrestle with whether these are dishonest discounts. You know, was he, was he cheating someone? Was he, was he being dishonest with the discounts? Or whether he was just waiving his own commission? Or whether he is possibly doing his boss a favor in removing some illegal interest charges? Well, they can't seem to come into agreement, and so probably we just don't know. But he is still, verse 8... A dishonest manager. And what is so startling about this story is the the employer's reaction to what takes place. Where he should surely have been outraged at being ripped off and and should have demanded prosecution. Verse 8, what do we see? He commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. He used his boss's money in the present to secure his future. Now you have to hand it to him. Of course, we have to understand that Jesus is not endorsing dishonesty. But he is highlighting the shrewdness of refusing to simply let things run their course of staking everything on a daring course of action and in using economic resources for non-economic goals to secure a good future. And shrewdness is a a desirable Christian quality. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, "...to be shrewd as serpents and gentle or innocent as doves." And that leads Jesus into the ironic aside at the end 
of verse 8 as he begins to apply all of this to us. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the people of light. Now there is um, an Old Testament concept of hesed love. It means a, a devotional piety of people towards God as well as love or mercy of God towards humanity. And this concept is all over the Old Testament, right? It is love God, love neighbor. And specifically in Leviticus chapter 19, we see that God pours his blessings out on his people so that they can be a blessing to others, to those in the community. Leviticus 19 talks about leaving the fruit and the harvest out for the traveler and for the poor that they too may reap the rewards of God's favor through you. You've been blessed by God. God intends to bless others through you, using you as a vessel, as a channel. What a, what a blessed concept. But clearly this concept had been forgotten by the Jewish leaders of the day, for the Pharisees, hearing this, ridiculed him, for they were lovers of money. Verse 14. And Jesus is saying, even the pagans get this. Even they understand this. Look at the extremely successful men and women of today. I mean, Oprah is no dummy. That lady knows how to use her money. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, right? She has endeared herself to people. You think if Oprah were to lose all of her money that she would have nowhere to go? I am certain she would find places to go. Even Warren Buffett and Bill Gates encourage billionaires to give away half of their net worth. Now, we can all scoff at the fact that almost none of us will have a fraction of half of their net worth. But the principle remains. They know how to create wealth. And they know how to use money to win and make friends on earth. Here's what Bishop J.C. Ryle says. The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. It's as if Jesus were saying, I understand you poor Christians are not in that league, but what I'm going to tell you in the next couple of verses about long-term investment for the future makes billionaires look like amateurs. Maybe you are not shrewd when it comes to the stock market. People will have 80 or 90 years uh, of living before worldly wealth is, is, is all gone. And when it is all gone, not if, but when, because it burns up, it, it's, only, it's only for here. It's only for this one life. It's all part of a, of a fallen system. You, you, you cannot take it with you. I want you to be shrewd investors says Jesus, in something eternal, not temporal, to put your money where nothing can actually touch it. 
And that's the tension in this passage. Here is Jesus naming money as worldly, literally the mammon of unrighteousness. An inherently fallen commodity, and yet we are to use it to gain friends. Well, what does he mean by that? And there's three lessons that I want us to apply from this passage today. The first is money and our attitude towards others. There is a real connection between eternity and time, Jesus says, with regard to money. You cannot take your money with you, but do not run from it. I saw a documentary on ancient Egypt recently, and those pharaohs really thought that they could take their wealth with them into the afterlife. And so, you know, they build up these huge mausoleums and, 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 and pyramids and things, and, and then they bury their treasure with them. Well, the guys that are actually doing the burying would then just go back later that night and take everything out, steal it all. But at the other end of the spectrum, I had a friend who was in ministry, and he saw how people were using and, and, and abusing their wealth, especially Christians. And he was so fed up, he just said he wanted nothing to do with it, which can be an almost impossible situation because we all need it. You can't just ignore money. Jesus says, you can invest in such a way that you will enrich your eternity. You can somehow send the fruit of it on ahead by acting now. Seize the moment. Do you want to know what shrewd looks like? Take your money and make friends, says Jesus. Friends who will be standing on the edge of glory to welcome you. Friends who will greet you and love you in your eternal home. Could it be that someone would come up to you in the new heavens and the new earth and say, your giving was used as a vessel by God's grace to reach me in my remote region of the world or in my anti-Christian country that I grew up in? It's exactly the same point that Jesus makes in Matthew 6.19 when he spoke of laying up treasures in heaven. You invest in gospel work. In the only thing that can last eternally, the lives of people. And we do that through ministries that we know and trust. And when you do that, because of who God is and how his kingdom works, you actually make Oprah and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look like amateurs. The really shrewd investor after the ultimate returns invests in the lives and the salvation of people. That is God's total return fund. You cannot lose. You cannot lose. Isn't this the most exciting motivation for giving? I heard the story of a man who went to the store and he bought a roll of red stickers and he bought a roll of green stickers. And he went around his house and he started putting a red sticker on everything that was temporal, everything that would just pass away, everything that would eventually break down. And then he took a roll of green stickers and he put 
green stickers on everything that was eternal. By the end of it, he looked around and almost everything in his house, including his house, was covered in red stickers, except for his wife and children. I don't know how they felt about having stickers on them, but, but the point is there. You, you, what Seth talked about, you begin to see something from a different perspective. You see it with clarity. And yet we put so much emphasis on these temporal things that will eventually burn up and, and be gone. But how much do we actually see the eternal value of the people that God has put us into contact with? Money in our attitude towards others. Money in our attitude towards ourselves, verses 10 to 12. Here's another sting for us. I can feel the sting in the room. Money is always a fun thing to talk about. Money is a bit of a test. Verse 11. You know, money is not actually a a huge thing. The problem is it becomes a test of our personal faithfulness, our trustworthiness, because how we handle it often reveals the kind of people that we are. It is always, always a spiritual issue, which is why the topic of money in church can feel so uncomfortable. John Piper says, The possession of money in this world is a test run for eternity. Can you pass the test of faithfulness with your money? Do you use it as a means of proving the worth of God and the joy you have in supporting His cause? Or does the way you use it prove that you really enjoy what you really enjoy is things? And not God. You will sometimes hear people say, If I had more, I would give more. Well, no, you wouldn't. It doesn't matter how much you have. If you have a small amount and then you were to win the lottery tomorrow, it would not change your heart. The widow who had nothing gave everything. People who have everything sometimes give nothing. It is rarely about circumstances. It is about perspective. It is about character. It's not about how much you have. It is about who you are. It's about priorities, where your heart is. That money that we are so preoccupied with, I have worked so hard for it. Well, it isn't even ours. You don't even own what you think you own. It is all God's. Our our money is someone else's property, verse 12. It is God's. It's all His. Like the crooked manager in the story, we are just the stewards And that changes everything, especially the questions we ask about giving. Rather than asking, how much of my money should I give to God? We learn to ask, how much of God's money should I keep to myself? And the difference between the two questions has monumental, eternal implications. Get it wrong, says Jesus, And you may be cutting into 
a loss of spiritual blessing. That's what verse 11 calls true riches, as the old Puritans put it, to part with what we cannot keep, to get what we cannot lose is a good bargain. To part with what we cannot keep, to get what we cannot lose is a good bargain. Money in our attitude towards others, we make friends for eternity by shrewd investment in gospel work. Money in our attitudes towards ourselves, we make faithful use of the money we have. It's God's, it's not ours. And finally, money in our attitude to God. How you relate to your money determines whether you are serving God or you are serving money. You cannot serve both. It is impossible. It's there in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is a hard word. And when Jesus uses the word mammon here, he gives it a a personal, a, a spiritual character. Mammon is not some morally neutral means of exchange. It is a rival God, an active agent with a seductive draw, a power out to dominate us. It asks for our allegiance. It makes a bid for our hearts. It promises so much and yet delivers so little. It has the power to win us over, to to mesmerize us, and even to destroy us. I ministered to a young man. He had once served with the finance team, actually, of of the church we worked with overseas. And and, and it had become uh, discovered that he had actually swindled and stolen $300,000 from his own grandmother. And he, we think he actually stole from the church as well. Very crafty, very cunning. He had fallen in love with money. And according to this, out of love with God. Money derailed his life. And we fool ourselves to think that this is not a Christian problem. According to Jesus, what you feel about money and and, and to do with money, whoever you are, can make or break you forever because you tend to put your money where your heart is. As Bonhoeffer said, our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion. We can only cleave to one Lord. And so let's take Jesus is teaching to heart. Let's resolve to make some shrewd gospel investment for the future. Christians should be the most joyous, enthusiastic, cheerful givers on earth. And we must remember that it is all God's anyway. We have to recognize that we are in a real spiritual battle on the subject of money which is so deep, a part of every one of us. And we are given the high calling of using mammon without serving mammon. And so the question is, what is your view of God here? Do you, do, you, do you see him as the one that is blessing, that he's using 
through hesed, love, he's using you as an instrument to, to bless others, that you would see greater spiritual returns on money? Or do you see God in another way? That he's out to get you or that he won't bless you in some capacity? This is really the core question at this issue. This is not a salvation issue. I need to point that out. But it does reveal a great deal about our character and who we are. And so as we've been going through Luke's gospel and we're looking at what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a learner, a person who has submitted ourselves to the love and grace of Christ, do we understand, have we truly received that gospel truth and then live it out? Here is a specific way in which we can live it out. Let's pray. Father, I am certain that there is almost no one in this room who has not had some effect in their life by money, good and bad. And yet it's often an issue we don't want to talk about. It's an issue that we would rather ignore. And yet here you are through the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to us about this issue, speaking to your disciples, disciples who wouldn't have much money, but disciples who would teach others and would in some capacity have to deal, in, 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 in every capacity have to deal with this. And you're showing us about trusting in your character and trusting in who you are and in understanding what eternity means. How much do we value eternity versus this life? So, Father, with this great challenge, we pray that you would work in our hearts. Some of us will never have great means, and yet we can still be generous givers. Some of us may have great means. We can still be generous givers. So, Father, help us to understand true discipleship. Help us to understand your character, your nature, that this all belongs to you. How wonderful the grace is that you have called us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. How much could it be that we would take unrighteous mammon and use it for your glory, for your kingdom, for the eternal lives of people? So, Father, minister to us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us and respond?